Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. And we're coming to you through the studios at the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us. We're going to today, Lord willing, finish up our long study on Romans. And uh, I, I hope that you have enjoyed this. Uh, thank you for your emails, your comments. Uh, if this is your first time, you can go to deepinscripture.com to uh, listen to the old programs. It goes back four, five, six years. And uh, we're going to, uh, not sure what we're going to do exactly when when we come back uh, after finishing Romans, but we're looking for your thoughts on that. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Thank uh, you. It's oh, been great to be here. And uh, it has been a pleasure uh, every week uh, joining you, Ken, to the study of Romans. Uh, and uh, I don't think when we began this way back five years ago, no, <laughs> it wasn't quite that long ago, but uh, we thought it'd take this long, but it's, I think it's been a real joy. Um, what we'll do in a moment is we'll pick up in Romans chapter 16 a couple uh, thoughts from last week and then we'll finish to the end but we do have an email uh, that uh, uh, came in through Twitter and it was a question can a Pope or any church decide that something not forbidden by Scripture is now forbidden and when I first heard that question, Ken, I didn't know, uh, it didn't give a name. But from my background, I kind of guessed it was coming from a Lutheran. Why is that? And it turned out that it was. Uh, <laughs> and it was a Lutheran pastor on Twitter, and I appreciate the email. Well, and, and I may be wrong, Ken, but here, here was always my view before. Um, that I, I had had a caricature when I was a non-Catholic, well, the first 40 years of my life, brought up Lutheran, and then later, uh, after my adult conversion as a congregational charismatic in college, and then later became a Presbyterian pastor. So I've had feet in a number of ponds back when I was a Protestant. We had this uh, caricature that it seemed that one of the main differences between Lutherans and Calvinists is that for Lutherans, if it wasn't forbidden by Scripture, it was okay. For Calvin, unless it says it's okay, it's forbidden. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and that seems to, when pushed to the extreme, there seemed to be Lutherans that were open to about anything. And the other extreme for Calvinists were almost nothing no music no fo- no pictures uh, no card playing dancing whatever it is uh, no musical instruments I mean that's the direction that those two groups seem to take so I mean at least that was my take in, in a general way on on those traditions well I think that's accurate as far as I know because it goes back to the controversy early in the Lutheran Reformation where um, the people, the uh, lay people, the, the peasants that were in church, they went in one time and they destroyed all the images that were in church. And Luther protested and said, no, 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 you misunderstand. That's not what we're doing here. We're not. This is this is a reformation. This is it's about doctrine. It's about liturgy, but it's not about destroying these images. And so the Lutherans 
did not, uh, a line like the Calvinists, they did not reject the use of three-dimensional images like statues and so forth, and you'll still see those in, in Lutheran churches today. So I think they were working on this principle that you just articulated, and that is that if it's not forbidden by Scripture, it's permitted. Whereas the Calvinists got rid of all the statues and the pictures and the images now, those were brought back into Calvinist churches later on, but in the early days, they got rid of them because they said, well, if Scripture says, um, doesn't say, doesn't permit you to use them, then you can't use them. So I think that that, that is accurate. Uh, I don't know, Marcus, what do you think about this uh, idea that can, can a church decide, uh, do, has a church ever decided that things not forbidden by Scripture are in fact forbidden? Or what? Well, again, from the Lutheran perspective, there's the question. If it isn't forbidden by Scripture, then the idea is, well, then it's okay. So, wait a second. Has there been times when a pope or a church has forbidden something that isn't specifically forbidden in Scripture, and is it okay? And it seems to me the truth is, if you sit back and think about it, now whether you're talking about an actual doctrine or dogma or a practice in the church— but the truth is, the history is full of this. It is, yes, that's true. I mean, all kinds of things that, at different levels, um, I mean, to a certain extent, for example, let's just take doctrine, the Trinity. It isn't spelled out in Scripture clearly that uh, three in one, the equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons. Right, three persons in one God. It isn't so. The Church recognized in those early councils there were understandings of that forbidden. That's mm-hmm. right. The divinity of Christ, fully God, fully man. How many wills in Jesus? Right. So the Church clarifies that in councils, and and the, by affirming one side is forbidding another side, neither of which are that clear in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in areas of praxis, ordination issues, uh, church polity, there's lots of areas. And can two things that really jump out in my mind is that nowhere, even Lutheranism, if we just take this gentleman's coming of his tradition, um, we recognize that um, abortion is not forbidden in Scripture. Oh, that's an excellent example. I was just thinking of that myself. Yeah. Yeah, because you can imagine some progressive, uh, so-called progressive Lutheran minister uh, getting up and saying, in fact, that there was a Presbyterian who recently talked about uh, the great ministry that Planned Parenthood is having, uh, and which you know, <laughs> was very hard to stomach to hear that. But you can imagine uh, a Lutheran minister saying, you know, what's forbidden? No, it's not forbidden in Scripture. It's okay. It's it's permitted. And look, the Bible doesn't ever say that abortion is wrong. It's not clear in the Bible that that's wrong. Um, even though in the earliest Christian documents like the Didache, there's a mention of the taking of a, of a pre-born life as being the equivalent of murder. So what is forbidden and what is not forbidden? Uh, in Scripture, certainly thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, has the implication of don't kill any innocent human life, and that if a human being, if a, if a child in the womb is 
is a human life, then you should not kill it. So it is forbidden, but they don't recognize it. Well, as another forbidden. Another good example is, I mean, it's it's amazing how fast things have just changed in our lifetime, Ken. Oh yeah. But okay, yeah. abortion isn't forbidden specifically in Scripture. On the other hand, homosexuality is very mm-hmm. clearly in Scripture, old and new. There are plenty of oh, references yeah. against the act of homosexuality. But here today, we can't even, we're careful to, awkward about mentioning it in our culture because oh, yeah. we've come so far to hear something that is forbidden in Scripture and no longer forbidden yeah. by yeah. our culture. And many Christian groups are going along with culture. Yeah, isn't that the case? And, and I think that's a sad indication. Not To some extent, you don't uh, are not surprised by a culture that quickly abandons its Christian roots can easily slip back into paganism. Um, and and yet what you see also is those churches are joining the bandwagon and going right back in there and, and basically proclaiming that, you know, uh, the Bible or, or Christian history or whatever doesn't really uh, teach this. It doesn't really teach that homosexual acts are wrong. And... Uh, it's very, very clear that um, you're faced with a problem immediately. What does Scripture forbid? What does it not forbid? And the only way to determine that is not arbitrary is by having a church as a whole which has some authority to determine or to declare uh, what, what that is. This is analogous. I hope that our hearers well, think about this one carefully. This is analogous to what's taking place in the Supreme Court right now, because we've had challenges from the Supreme from the lower courts. One affirms that uh, the laws which say that marriage is only between a man and a woman are legitimate, and other rulings which have simply set aside all of those laws which have been passed in various states. Now the Supreme Court has to decide. They're the final court of appeal and natural or positive law in this in this matter and so we recognize that in our Bali politic that there's a need for some unity of decision that's what Christians need and that's of course why you and I believe that the Catholic Church is so good and so valuable because it gives us that unity of judgment for the whole church Ken I didn't realize until you and I are here talking about this that how directly this question in this email re- relates to the entire chapter 16 of Romans. Um, I'd like to say that I was so wise that I planned this thing out perfectly, but I didn't. I admit <laughs> the Lord did, and I pray that uh, that it was of Him. Um, because, interestingly enough, this last chapter of Romans, we know historically in the early there are copies of the early book of Romans that didn't include most of chapter 16. So some scholars imply that it was an add-on, that maybe the, the guts of the book of Romans was an earlier letter that later these lists of people were added on. Other Scholars, which I think makes more sense, is it was the opposite way, that the original letter that Paul wrote 
um, through his secretary, whose name is mentioned in verse 22, Tertius, mm-hmm. um, had all these greetings to the Christians in Rome, but then as the letter was copied in the future to be read at Laodicea or Thessalonica or Corinth, that some copyists removed these names thinking that they were not important, um, which would make sense. However, I believe as in relation to reflection on that email, it even makes me more convinced that what we have in chapter 16 is the very creative wisdom of Bishop Paul, recognizing his responsibility under God to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, which he says in earlier verse chapter 15, he'll do to Spain. He has responsibility to passing that on in a way of much more conviction that almost anybody today has. I hate to say that, but when you read, especially lately in the readings in Acts, and we see how much Paul was willing to give of himself to take the gospel, his convictions about the need for the pagans to discover Jesus Christ, and that their only way to salvation was through Jesus, and he was willing to die and get beat and stoned and all of that. I mean, where are we today, folks? We just kind of believe, well, if everybody kind of lives out their faith that they know, and (laughs) that was not the conviction of Paul. It was in Jesus Christ. And to me, chapter 16 is his very creative way, accepting his responsibility as authority, as teacher, apostle, bishop, uh, to convey to this church, which he has never visited, though he knows about the inner workings of it through the names of these people he lists in 3 through 16. But how is he going to convey to these people their need to, to trust in the body, their leadership, and to follow the authoritative, trustworthy leaders, as opposed to culture or all the other voices that might bring dissension. How does Paul tell them that? I mean, maybe one way is to say, here's 15 people to trust. Here's five I've heard about that are pretty nasty. Don't go with them. But Paul's not there. Paul's never been to Rome. He's only heard it secondhand. So how do you follow the love of Christ in which you are to love your your enemy even? You're not to practice in gossip. You're not to pass along gossip. You hear somebody, oh, that guy, Fred over there, he's a bad Christian. Don't follow him. So how is Paul to trust what he has heard, yet to convey the urgent need to these people to be faithful to the gospel that he has proclaimed? And to me, that's what chapter 16 is all about. Because, go ahead, Ken. Well, I'm just going to say, in your in talking about verses 3 through 16 and all the names of these people, you know, most of whom we can't even identify, we have no idea who they are or were, um, yet what you've noticed or what I think you've pointed out here in your worksheet is that 
he uses this phrase frequently that these are people in the Lord. Greet them in the Lord. Greet them in Christ. Uh, greet them um, in that they're, they're workers for Christ. In other words, he's identifying those people that he can clearly say have a commitment and a devotion to Christ and to his cause. And it's interesting that he, he ends that section with these two beautiful statements. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. In other words, he's saying all of these people that I've mentioned here, they are worthy of this affection, this mm. Christian affection, because they're in the Lord. They have been in, they've been made into Christ and they're persevering in their living in Christ. So it, it really confirms, I think, what you're saying is that Paul, in his passion for the gospel, identifies these leaders as being people worthy of emulation. He even says in verse 7 at the end that Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are men of note among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. I mean, that's pretty amazing that these men who are now in Rome, you know, taking leadership positions, he, Paul lifts up as men of note among yeah. the apostles. Mm -hmm. And they were in Christ before Paul. So they go back a long, long way to the foundations of the Christian movement within the within Judaism. Right. Uh, verse 16, you mentioned greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, what does that mean? And people today, should we do that? And what does it mean? Does it, do we just shake hands? And, and when we get caught up in that, we miss the point of it. In Roman pagan society, when a person of a lower class passed a person of a higher class, Ken, what were they supposed to do? <laughs> what were they supposed to do? Kiss their feet. Kiss their hand. Show obeisance. Because they were unequal. And so you have this unequality in the culture. But what happens in Christianity? You kiss one another. The equality in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a master or slave, husband or wife, Greek or Jew, you're one in Jesus Christ. So you kiss one another. And that's an expression of this koinonia. So it, as that as the summary of all those verses, if you're looking in your, your Bible, all these people that Paul points out in that community that can be trusted. And Ken uses this phrase in Christ, and I know we didn't want to spend too much time on that, but I really believe that this phrase in Christ, Jesus, in the Lord, that is so common throughout all of Paul's letters, and it begins in the teachings of Jesus when he says, you are in me and I in you. John chapter 15, John chapter 17. The unity we share in him is the unity that he shared with the Father. Can this phrase carry so much more theological depth than we often want to give it uh, credit for? Well, and it, you're absolutely right, because if you go back to chapter 6 of Romans, where Paul is talking about baptism, he says there that baptism confers 
eternal life on a person. He says, do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, by baptism, we share in that death of Christ. It, as it were, crucifies the old nature within us, and we're buried with him into baptism. We experience a kind of death in baptism, the baptism of the old nature, of the death of the old nature, so that we might have the resurrected life of in our new nature. And so when a person has undergone that, then they have, when they have died with Christ, when they've been raised with Christ, then they become in Christ. And being in Christ, they are a new creation. Like Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, against verse 21, he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That new creation is a fulfillment of what God did in Adam in the very beginning. Yeah, it's, boy, this could be easily an entire hour-long discussion. We won't go there, but this idea of of in Christ, um, there are different levels of understanding that. there, And we can see it as, is there a level of continuity between the Old and the New Testament of this intimacy with God? And on the one hand, we hear all through the Old Testament putting your faith in God, trust in the Lord with all your heart in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's repeated hundreds of times in the Psalms and in the Proverbs and uh, throughout. In, but, but it's at a level of, do you trust in your car? Um, do you trust it to get you to work? Um, how much do you trust it? I remember once hearing an analogy that I use way back as a Protestant minister, the, a man who was a tight rope walker and could uh, has successfully not only crossed the Niagara Falls on a cable, but was able to push a wheelbarrow in front of him across the cable. And a person standing on the side said, I, you are the greatest tight rope walker there ever was. I, and the guy asked me, do you believe I can do it again? He said, oh, I totally believe you can do it. And the guy, how much do you believe? I said, you know, to what extent? He says, well, do you believe enough in my ability to get across this tightrope, enough to get in the wheelbarrow to let me push you across? We're talking about a level of trusting, a surrendering of ourselves. But it seems that the idea of being in Christ through baptism, the old is gone, the new has come, is even more than that trusting. That trusting is the beginning of that journey, the continuing of that journey. But we're talking of an intimacy, which can you referred to as almost a fulfillment of what life was like before the fall. Be- oh, yeah. Because that's one of the only other times in the Old Testament that we see this use of the word in, in relationship to our, our relationship with God. If we read the uh, narratives of creation in Genesis, where it says that man was made in the image of God, I think it's in Genesis one twenty six. it says he made in the image and likeness of God. Um, I think the way to understand that is that God made Adam and Eve with the goal of living in God perfectly for eternity. But since they made them with 
a human will and rationality that had to be tested. And so that's what the Garden of Eden is. That's what the temptation in the Garden is about. The temptation uh, where it says, don't eat of the free, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is not just one among many temptations. That is the test, which if they had passed the test and not eaten, uh, many church fathers and theologians, both Protestant and Catholic, will say that um, this is an example. This is what God would have done. He would have confirmed them in their righteousness and their holiness forever in this eternal life that which he would have given to them as a gift. Now, that fact, or if that's true, and I think it probably is true, what it means is that what we experience in Christ in the New Testament is a fulfillment of that. We experience it only partially because we still live in a sinful world. We still have concupiscence within our hearts. But someday, that complete and total intimacy with God is going to be a reality for all of us who are living in heaven or in the beatific vision. The whole Old Testament, the the great sacramental system, or excuse me, sacrificial system that was there, all of that was pointing forward to this reality of abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit, as we saw heard in the gospel this past Sunday that you alluded to earlier. This is what just pervades Paul's theology about being in Christ. Which is why this is true of us, whether we feel it or not. It's true through baptism. Uh, The old is gone, the new has come. New creations. But it requires our actualization of that. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies on, we press onward. In uh, Colossians, Put off the old man. Put on the new. You know, that it's it involves our intellect and will to yeah. claim that which is true about ourselves that yeah. involves this intimate union we have with Jesus. Um, and we have a world that tries to convince us that this isn't true about us. We're deluding ourselves. Uh, but then we, we fall back on the mystery. And so, in the end, by intellect and will, we're called to obey that which we believe, which is what we'll talk about in a moment, to live that out. And uh, we'll take a break now, and we'll come back and pick up on that, and our need to make sure we listen to trustworthy voices. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're right in the middle of, of Romans, the last chapter of Romans. And uh, again, you can connect with us at deepinscripture.com. Send us an email, dis at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you. Ken, uh, we broke right in the middle of this chapter. And as we've been proposing, is that to a certain extent, what he was trying to get to through verses 1 through 16 was, in fact, verses 17 through 20. Because of what he's been hearing from these friends in the Lord that he's been mentioning in 3 through 16. He's been hearing about the needs of the people in Rome, a church to which Paul has never visited. So how do you encourage, um, exhort these Jewish and Gentile Christians that to whom he's never visited, but yet he knows, as he mentioned earlier, that he has a responsibility so one way to do that is first mention all the trustworthy voices and then give the warning. And Ken, let me read it and then I'll, I'll pass it on to you to, to, to address the, the issues. Paul says, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yeah, this is a uh, an incredibly compact passage because it it summarizes a lot of what was going on in the early church, and not only in Paul's time but also later. Uh, he says in the very beginning, "I take note of those," and when he says "take note," this is the word actually the word related to the word bishop. It's episkepo, or escopain means to look into something, really think about it. In other words, don't just, uh, it's not just a casual look. This is an investigation. Look at those who create, on the one hand, dissensions, and uh, it says in some versions, difficulties. And I think that's a little too weak because he's talking, he uses the Greek word skandala, hmm. ta skandala, which we get the word scandal from. 
And what he's talking about something here is extremely serious. This is, there are people who are trying to put blocks in the way, roadblocks in the way of the Christian journey. And these are the people who ultimately are not serving Christ, he says in verse 18, but they're serving their own desires, their own appetites, their own wishes. And they do so by flattering and by by good-sounding words. I, I just can't help but think about some of the the preachers that we hear on TV today, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. all kinds of words of flattery and enticement and riches and wealth. And then ultimately they're leading people away from Christ. Now, uh, not because I know what's in their heart, but because I can hear what they're being, what's yeah. being said with their message. This is precisely the issue, uh, this question of dissensions or this question of tearing the body apart, putting scandals in the way of those on the journey. This is precisely what was being faced by St. Cyprian in the church in Carthage in North Africa. In reading about him and translating his work recently, it's very clear that Paul was very wise to say this because it occurs over and over and over again in the history of the church. We see both dissensions and, that is, schisms, and we see scandals being placed in the way. If we go right back to the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, you and I, Mark, as believe, as, as probably most faithful Catholics do, that the, the Reformation was not a good idea. But it was an understandable human reaction to the scandals that were in the church mm-hmm. at the time with clergy who were living immoral lives or maybe who were not you know, barely knowledgeable of the faith at all. Uh, so these, these human scandals were there. Did that, did that justify the Reformation? Well, I think you'll agree with me. No, it did not. But it was humanly understandable that people would have reacted against these things. And this is what Paul is saying should not be done. Yeah, the chapter 16, maybe in draft one, uh, when Paul was sitting down with Tertius uh, deciding how to communicate, he might have summarized verses 1 through 16 by first saying, take note of those who teach you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Yeah. According to the revelation of the mystery, take note of those who teach you according to the command of the eternal father. That may have been how he began and then said, and then on the other hand, take note of those who create dissensions. But he begins by saying, wait, maybe we need more detail here. Let me list the ones that uh, are trustworthy who teach according to the gospel or teach or live according to Jesus Christ, who've been in it even before me, he says. He almost says in that one verse, I fall at their knees. But then after he says that, he he resists the temptation maybe to list the names of people that he's heard are problem solvers because he doesn't know them. But he, but he lays out guidelines as you can are as ripe today as they were then. Because think about the individuals, the speakers, the writers, the leaders in our present-day culture who, through their fair and flattering words, are watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
are twisting it, uh, carefully shaping it, um, pulling it away, creating dissensions and even scandals in opposition to the doctrines that were taught in the early day church. And Ken, this is something that I throw back into your court because in all the early writings of the earliest fathers, so in other words, you've got Paul and Peter and James and John, Jude, you've got the early New Testament writers, but at the same time, their disciples were writing letters that we have. Apostolic fathers, we've got all through the second century, Justin Martyr and Clement, and then into the third century and the fourth century. And whenever these leaders were faced with a dissension or a scandal, the, their answers, Ken, were even in the consuls, were not, show it to me in the Bible. You know, let's go find the text. It was always, what was the teaching that we received? Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, that's, that's what you hear Paul saying in that text that we know so well from uh, Second Thessalonians, I think it is, uh, 2.15, or is it one First Thessalonians? First Thessalonians 2.15. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I praise you. <clears throat> stand firm, you, you know. Stand firm in the in the traditions which we've taught either by letter or by by word uh some people have wondered and as an example of that the importance of this passing on of this tradition is why was there no well-defined canon written down early in the church not until the late fourth century now the the, the canon was there i mean people were using the bible and they were using a well-defined bible but nobody wrote it down and, and so you said, well, why, why did they not do that? Well, the reason is very simple. They could just go to their bishop and say, what are the books of the Bible? What's to be included? What's not to be included? Um, what, but, but your point is that it was the church that was facing these difficulties, these scandals, these schisms. And it was the church that needed to respond to that. It wasn't just that they said, well, that's against the Bible. They were saying, no, this is against the tradition which has been given to us. Christ. What about the the avoidance? Yeah. You know, that um, has been interpreted in a variety of Christian traditions, some to mean um, uh, uh, shunning mm-hmm. of other Christian brothers and sisters. Um, and it, it needs, that's why, again, we need the church, the trustworthy leadership of the church to decide that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have all different interpretations and lack of charity being demonstrated between Christians. Yeah. Um, and so the need, on the one hand, to love our enemies, love those who feel differently than we do about certain values, love the people, but recognize that the teachings may be horrendously wrong. And so our call is to... Uh, is to stand up in love for the people. But if we really love them, then we're called to point out the flaws in how they have pulled themselves and others away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this, this, uh, and you notice in verse 17, he says, he gives us the way. He says, for one thing, he says, there's, there's, uh, as it's translated, dissensions. It could be translated schisms. It's dichostasia. This is 
tearing the body apart, right? And then the second thing he mentions are the, the scandals. These are the things that are perhaps moral behavior that's out of accord. But you'll notice that it's in opposition to the teaching that you've learned. In other words, that's how you know these things, these are people to be avoided is because they don't hold to the teaching. And again, to, to cite Cyprian in the mid-third century, that's what Cyprian was trying to bring people back to. What's the foundation of the church? The foundation of the church is that it's one church. It's unified. And that unity of all the different bishops in the world is centered in Rome. It's centered in the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And that unity is what defines for us how we tell what's according to the teaching and what's not according to the teaching. It's this unity that the whole church has embraced. That teaching that came from Christ, that was handed down to the apostles, then to the bishops, and is spread throughout the world. As Irenaeus so beautifully puts it, the churches in Germany don't teach something different than the churches in Gaul yeah. or France or those in Asia. They're all, it's all one teaching, even though there's many churches throughout the empire. Yeah, boy, it seems that verse 18, beneath what he says there is a challenge to, to each of us to ask this question simply, who do you serve? Do you serve Jesus Christ or your appetites, yeah. your flesh, your passions? Oh, this is what I feel. Um, who do you serve? And then the bottom line is, okay, how do I know whether I'm serving Jesus or my passions? And the danger of figuring it out for ourselves is that we can be blind to how our passions shape our thinking. You know, we might intellectually know what's true, but if we got our passions fighting against us, yeah. you know, we can convince ourselves that following Jesus Christ is following our passions. And so that's why we have, and we need to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in other traditions who are really struggling with how to live this out in their culture when they are no longer connected to the church. I've got a really, really good friend who's a pastor in a denomination that has just voted to to buy into the aberrant opinions of our culture about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And he's leading his congregation and figuring out which direction does he go. And we need to pray for these people because they're in the midst of dissension trying to figure out how to serve our Lord Jesus Christ when all the voices of our appetites is all that fills us with all of our technologies today. And we need the guidance of the church. So that, as it says in verse 19, we can be wise yes. as to what is good and guileless, as to what is evil. That's what Paul wants for us. Yeah, that, I think that's the goal that he's laying out for us here. In other words, you take the teaching that he mentions in verse uh, 17, you take that teaching, you attach yourselves to those that are good, you avoid those that are evil, or you turn away from that which is, brings dissension and brings, uh, brings um, yeah, dissension and, and scandal, and you seek to be wise under the only wise God in what is leading you to good. And by the way, the Greek says here, 
it says, it could translate it, I want you to be wise with respect to what is evil and what is good. Or I want, it could translate it, I want you to be wise leading to the good and innocent with respect to what is leading to the evil. This reminds us, of course, of our Lord's own words, right? Uh, be wise as serpents, but it's harmless. And it's exactly the same word, harmless as doves, is innocent as doves. Don't carry malice and guile within you, but seek that which is good. That is the goal of our life. And if we do that, we will in turn be with that one who is good, who is God. One other, oh boys, as you said, there's so much in this little section, Ken. In verses 19 and 20, there's something that's implied here that's very important. In verse 19, he says, For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to, I want to have you wise as to what is good and guileless as what is evil. At the present time, their obedience of the faith is known to all. But that doesn't guarantee where they're going to be tomorrow, or in a week, or in a month, or a year. You know, the danger of the presumptions Oh, everything's fine now. And when we, we be, become presumptuous, we can become lazy. And we can become blind to the voices. We can mm. become overconfident that we've arisen in Jesus above all of this. And because we are so wise, I can listen to this voice or that voice without danger. And Paul's saying, don't you dare. He says in another place um, in 1 Corinthians 10, I think it is, Ken, where he warns about being so cocky to think you've arrived and that uh, you're not no longer beyond temptation. Uh, yeah, that's in 1 Corinthians 10, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that danger when he says... Um, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. You know, that, that's the struggle that's there. And so that's why he's doing this. He's pointing out to them there are leaders in your church you can trust who are teaching according to the gospel. There are others that are pulling you away from Jesus Christ. Be careful lest you fall. Because underneath it all, verse 20, is the devil. Yeah, Satan is there as every New Testament writer, including the Lord Jesus, recognizes that it is a battle that we continue to fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, it's, it's clear that verse 22, is, uh, verse 20 is also an allusion to the story in Genesis where... Uh, when when Adam and Eve have sinned, it says that the the head uh, of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, right? And clearly this trampling on Satan under your feet. Now notice what he says, though. This follows immediately when he says that you are to be wise with respect to what is good and innocent or guileless with respect to evil. In other words, it's by our being transformed more into the image of Christ, more into goodness, more into virtue, that's how God is going to trample uh, the, the enemy under our feet so that it's not just that 
we're sitting back and God's going to come in, you know, out of the blue and just trample Satan down. No, it's by our becoming wise with respect to what is good that he will trample Satan under our feet. And he says, under your feet. And he says, quickly. In other words, the more virtuous we become, the more godly we become, the more holy we become, that's how God does the trampling of Satan's plan under our feet. Yeah, I'm one that believes that every word in Scripture is important. Um, Every word's inspired. Every word's there by the Holy Spirit. And you could pull out words and then they'll lose its meaning, but every word. Then he could have said, then God will crush Satan. He could have said that, but he had other words in there that were significant, that God of peace. Remember, Christ talks about, I give you my peace, my peace I give you. You know, Mm -hmm. this is... It's a very deep understanding of the intimacy we have with Christ, not just the peace between nations, but a deeper level of experiencing the indwelling divine nature of Christ, that the Mm -hmm. God of peace will soon, soon, in other words, it's not merely at the end of time, but now in in the working of the church, and it isn't just that he's going to do it, he's under our feet. That's our responsibility. That's our job to fight. He's already been Satan's already been conquered, but in the day by day working out, in the way that the devil continues to try and destroy the world, as C.S. Lewis so creatively put it in the Screw Tape Letters, it's under our individual feet, and that's why we need the church, and that's why in verse twenty B we need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to do it, and that's why it's appropriate that the next thing he says is for this grace of Christ to be with us uh, and to empower us. Yeah, I think the uh, if you look at the, the end of verse 20, he, he, said, he gives this wish, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then it's something similar at the end of the very, the end of the book and verse 27, when he speaks about the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. He wishes grace to his people and he wishes glory to God. And these are always two correlates that go together, grace and glory. The grace is what we, we receive from God, and we give that glory back to God through Jesus Christ. The grace came to us through Christ and his blessed mother, because she's the one who bore him into the world. And then we give glory to God the Father through Christ, and through that mother who's still associated with him in his work of redemption. Yeah, if we're going to carry out our responsibility of crushing Satan in our little part of the world, we can't do it on our own. We need it by the grace of our Lord Jesus that we receive through the sacraments and through his indwelling that has made us in Christ. Verse 21 through 23, I, I again believe this is a part of his pastoring of his people. These are the people that they know that Paul is in union with. And so mm-hmm. it 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 uh, strengthens Paul's word because he stands in union with Timothy and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and Tertius and Gaius and Erastus. These stand around Paul and so confirm his message to the people. 
Ken, we, just a couple minutes left. We get to those wonderful doxology at the end, 25, 26, 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. I remember saying that a few times at the end of when I lived, <laughs> when I lived uh, worship as a Presbyterian pastor, many times I used that doxology. Well, it's it's hard to improve on those beautiful words, right? Because <laughs> Paul is, Paul is, there could be a verb implied here, I commend you to him who was able to. Mm. Or it could be, be just be a wish, glory be to this one who is uh, able to strengthen you according to the gospel for obedience. And we have similar statements in later later in Scripture. We have uh, in the book of Jude, to him who is able to guard you, to keep you faultless, and to present you before his glory with faultless in great joy to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be majesty and power and authority. It's very similar to what Paul says here in verse 27, that this glory that we want to be ascribed to God, to the only wise God, is through Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of this epistle, Paul, I mean uh, Marcus, Paul has been saying that, that all of God's glory and goodness and love flows to us through Jesus Christ. And that is why uh, you and I can rejoice every day and every week that that glory is coming to us through the Mass, because the Mass is centered upon and flows from Jesus Christ. The Church exists for one purpose, and that is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Praise be to Him, and then He, in turn, leads us in praise of God the Father. Well, the bookends of this entire book are Romans 1, 5, in which He says, through whom in other words, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he ends to bring about the obedience of faith from God through Jesus Christ. That's the bookends, and that's the challenge to us as we live a Paul's command. That all that we've received by grace, we are now to live out in every aspect of our life, surrendering not to the voices of our culture, but listening to the word of Christ as the Holy Spirit guides us through the church. Thank you for joining us on our study of Romans. Ken, thank you for being a partner in this. And both of us look forward to being with you again soon. God bless you.